Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and for this bonus episode, I am joined by Tharg's very own publicity droid and now brand manager for 2000 AD. Uh, it's a very warm welcome to Michael Mulcher. Michael, welcome to the book club. Uh, thank you very much indeed. It's uh, you, you invited me on here a very long time ago, and we've not been able to, uh, uh, to, to make it work, so uh, it's nice to finally be here. Well, we've got a good reason for talking uh, this afternoon. Um, I noticed that we did your 2000 AD origin story, you probably won't remember this, but on, a, on episode 21 when I was recording Sandbites at Thought Bubble back in the mm. before times. So we've done that. And I also noticed that it's in the acknowledgements at the back of your book. Um, you, do, you, you tell your 2000 AD origin story there as well. Yeah. So I'm going to rush us straight on to the book that we are talking about, because obviously you've just brought out I Am the Law, How Judge Dredd Predicted Our Future from Rebellion Books, uh, currently $14.99 and also cheaper on the Kindle. Um, Now, I know some of the answers from reading, as I say, the back of the book, but tell us what on earth gave you the idea to write a book about Judge Dredd and the history of law and order in the uh, in the UK and US. I, I mean, it wasn't necessarily the the book that I pitched originally. Um, it was just I'd, I'd done the um, as many of your listeners will know. I did the the kind of back matter for the Judge Dredd Mega Collection books, and there were one or two features in there that, that I kind of delved um, quite deeply into. I was reminded that. Um, uh, at one of my um, signings, that I'd been inf- <laughs> I'd been informed by a friend that he'd been having a conversation with one of his friends who had chastised both him and me for using terms like fascism and authoritarianism wrong. And I, was, I was like, "Oh, okay, um, this requires more study." Um, and after feature, I mean that 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 series ran for, for something ridiculous like three or four years, and after that, I. Ed, one or two people, including my boss at Rebellion, um, say, oh, you should, you should turn this into a book. And I was like, yeah, yeah okay, well, I've, I've mostly written it, um, you know, so it would just be a case of tidying it up. And then I began <clears throat> doing some extra reading, and this was in the midst of, uh, well, in the gap between first and second lockdown in 2020. We also were having loads of work done on our house, so my wife and I were living without heating and hot water and all this, that, and the other. Um, so it's quite a stressful period. But the, the the book that I pitched was just like a general, what's the politics of Judge Dredd kind, kind of book. And then I, as I was doing my reading, it, it just became more and more apparent that what all I'd done with my previous work was merely chart the edges of my own ignorance. And actually, the more I read the more this book evolved into into what it became. I, I, I read a very um, key book. Uh, it's essentially a textbook. Um, it's on the, the, the uh, well, it used to be on the, um, the syllabus at uh, Hendon, the police training college, which is The Politics of the Police by Robert Reiner. And that just charts the history of the police, uh, um, ideas about the police, uh, media portrayals, the, the different um, uh, areas and challenges and all this, that and the other. And, as I was going through this, lots and lots of stuff started chiming with dread stories that I knew and was and was rediscovering as I was reading my way through the case files. So what evolved was this narrative of law and order politics, and it, it became quite clear to me that the, in a way, the origin story of of dread hasn't been explored fully. 
you know, documentaries and books kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, well, it was the age of punk and there were, you know, three-day week and winter of discontent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that doesn't really explain where 2080 comes from, really. But within our politics, there was a much deeper um, trend occurring in the 1970s that Dredd both parodied and, um, yeah, predicted the uh, the direction of over the over the coming decades. You mentioned, I mean, you know, reading some of the books because one of the things that stands out in your book is your your uh, sort of like copious amount of research this must have involved. It, it's extensively footnoted. Um, you got your journalistic training, and that you don't you don't report a fact without a source or for it. Hmm. I mean, how was the research process during lock or in the gap between lockdowns, or I guess going on through them? Um, chaotic. Um, like I said, I, 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 all each book revealed to me was that there was more to learn um, from others. And what, what, what was really interesting about when I started it was was the, the finally um, notions of um, uh, police defunding and police abolition had kind, had, had kind of broken through with the, the murder of George Floyd in uh, George Floyd in twenty twenty. Um, the Finally, people were having these conversations, which which generally had been either restricted to uh, academics, radicals, um, or uh, amongst communities most affected by policing. So, um, communities of color, in particular, you know, the, the, many of the the great um, critics of policing uh, have 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 been uh, writers of color, women. Um, who find themselves not as protected by policing as, as say, white middle-class uh, men are. And so as time went on, I bought more and more books. I was, I was, I'm very lucky where I live that I could become a, a reader at the Bodleian Library, which kind of allows you to, um, if you log on to their Wi-Fi, you can access uh, JSTOR, which is the big um, academic um, hmm. uh, paper uh, uh, network archive. So that saved a lot of time and money. And, you know, there, there, there's certain books stand out. Robert Reiner's Politics of the Police, Alex Vitale's The the, the End of Policing, you know, they're, they're, they're just two that, that uh, changed my, uh, not just perceptions of things, but also provided direction in a way that, that, that I wouldn't have necessarily gone without them. And, you know, that led me through into some, <clears throat> for most people, relatively esoteric um, writing. Uh, I'm thinking especially of concepts like uh, necropolitics, um, um, which is uh, a Chilean member's um, uh, kind of post-colonial analysis of, 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 of the power of colonialism. Um, so, yeah, it, it just kind of went on and on. Eventually, my wife said, well, you're not allowed to buy any more books <laughs> in, in, in that kind of, you're not allowed to buy any more books until you've read the ones that you bought. Um, no. I, and he, she was right to do so because there's a risk that comes with that, which is that you just end up researching forever. And, and my, my brain already works in loops and um, get stuck on on things. So um, to if I was going to move forward, I had to stop reading and start writing. And and by the time I, I completed my first chapter, which um, weirdly was chapter four, because again my brain doesn't work in in linear fashion. You know that was around the time of the January the sixth 
attempted insurrection um, in uh, um, in Washington DC. So you know, and you've got uh, Pretty Patel. Off, uh, offering swift justice to uh, to people she doesn't like, and and you know that process has only got worse. So, yeah, I think it would have been a different book if it had been written at a different time. Uh, not least because the research would have been different, the circumstances would have been different. I mean, you know, when you get a, a former president of the United States tweeting "law and order" in full caps with lots of exclamation marks, you kind of go, "Well, maybe there's a thread here that I can that I can pull on." <laughs> And you mentioned the origins of dread. Um, um, let's go back to the 1970s. You know, societies tend, in, in our experience, not to notice when there's a moral panic going on while they're in the moral panic. And in your book, you talk about the law and order um, moral panic that started then and sort of how that led, in a way, to the creation of dread. I wonder if you could say something about that. Sure. I mean, it, it, what's what's really notable is that there was there was a key book. Um, I, I refer to it in the in the credits as like the spiritual inspiration for for uh, I'm the Law, which is um, Policing the Crisis uh, by Stuart Hall and um, his colleagues at, um, at I think the unit was part of Birmingham University, but I might I might be wrong about that. And they wrote a book called uh, The Police and the Crisis, which was all about the, the mugging crisis of the early 70s, which was this moral panic bound up with uh, race and colonialism and fears about youth um, and the collapse of society. And uh, law and order, uh, it's, it's one of the most shocking things, actually, that, that, that uh, I think I kind of came across. Was before the 1960s, crime really wasn't much of a vote winner. You know, if you went on about how, how much crime there there was, a government was essentially admitting that they'd failed. Um, so you didn't really point that kind of stuff out. But uh, by the 1970s, you have a lot of social change taking place. Um, you know, uh, movements for LGBTQ plus rights, uh, for women's rights, for the rights of the young, for uh, communities of color, uh, particularly in America, but, all, uh, but you know, uh, uh, very prominently in Britain, and uh, change is scary. And essentially, the 1970s formed this kind of reactionary moral panic that centred on crime, because that was a very convenient way to talk about race and youth and women and the family and and, and, and all these kind of right-wing buttons without actually talking about them. So, um, you know, the the, the 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 mugging crisis in particular centred on youth and race. The, the paper's filled with stories about uh, a young black mugger, which was this, uh, you know, an alien word for hmm. effectively an alien person uh, as, 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 as far as the papers were concerned. And this uh, this only got stronger. The, 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 the kind of political and social forces that were mustered by this moral panic were just too good to, to, to miss. And you've got the police becoming, a for the first time, an, an overtly um, political lobby, the Police Federation, uh, who are now ubiquitous um, in coverage of, of policing, um, rose to prominence in, in, in the 1970s as, as this kind of quasi-trade union. And by the late 70s, all of this is getting bundled up and into a into an impen- sense of impending crisis. So, um, uh, crime, the unions, um, you know, 
childhood delinquency, um, uh, feminists, uh, you know, um, all this, that, and the other. So what emerges is is law and order politics, which is um, reactionary, right-wing. It seeks to discipline where things have, quote, gotten out of hand. And into this strides Judge Dredd, who is um, partly founded on characters such as uh, Dirty Harry, the Sweeney, what what is termed the vigilante cop. So the man who has to step outside of the law in order to correct the, the law's failings. But Dredd's different in that um, he is not a loner. He's not breaking the law. What he's doing is enforcing the law. Um, but it is a law that is so extreme, it makes us all into criminals. This is the most wonderful, perfect, cynical satire on the outcome of this kind of um, politics, the outcome of this kind of policing that seeks only to punish, not to um, foster consensus or protect consensus. Um, And as Thatcherism uh, came in and and began to grow uh, in its power, you you see this more and more and more, that it's discipline and punishment, not consensus, not rehabilitation, not um, trying to, to build a fair and equal and just society, but to punish those one believes are deserving of punishment. Um, and there's there's a, a line from, from Robert Reiner where, where he says, you know, the, the police can, can protect social harmony, they cannot create it. So at this moment of great change, as, as the neoliberals under Thatcher and Reagan are, are, are just smashing the institutions of state, um, you have this wonderful comic book character who basically goes, well, you know, a world in which the only thing left um, in terms of the state uh, is, is policing, this is what you get, you know? Yeah, it's fascinating because I, I had that received wisdom that Dread was a sort of a bit like the Dan Dare and the other characters in the prog, that he was, a, you know, a created in order to just kill robots and aliens because they were low-calorie kills for kids. Yeah. But actually the idea of the, you know, as you say, Dirty Harry in America and over here the Sweeney, these renegade cops, mm. it seems like uh, that was very much in the mix when John was sort of coming up with the character. And, um, and you, I mean, you, you're sorry to interrupt, but you know, you look at One Eye Jack, which was John's character for Valiant, um, which yeah. is it's just Dirty Harry with the the serial numbers filed off, and yeah. um, it doesn't. Not that this was John's intention. He doesn't really say anything about policing necessarily. He's just a hardline cop. And so, you know, 2008 comes along, and John says, "Well, what we need is a hardline cop," and. What comes out of the mix is is a hardline cop who's you know as we said is not a renegade. He's he he is the law, <laughs> you know. And um, so your book goes chronologically through Dred's history and of course you know the history of policing in the last sort of forty fifty years. Mm. Um, in the eighties, Dred becomes, or you know, he'd be by then, by the eighties, he's become the most popular character in the comic. He's overtaken all those early favourites, um, and I, you know, I know that John has said about the more unpleasant they made him, the more popular he seemed to become. And I wonder if it's when Alan, Alan Grant, comes on board. 
that he starts pointing out to the readers, you know, um, you're, <laughs> we're not supposed to like this guy, you know. <laughs> uh, he's, not, he's not a good guy. Yeah, I, I, I did a, a talk at the Cartoon Museum, um, which I think you were at. Where I was you, there, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I said that, that, that Alan Grant's wit leavened Wagner's grit. And for me, those initial stories, you know, he comes on at the very tail end of, of um, the Judge Child quest. And then Dredd goes, Dred goes back to the streets. And it's like a light goes on. Like all the elements have been there and John had been doing these fantastic stories in the lead up to it. But just occasionally you could see him get frustrated because he, 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 he um, you know, I, I, I think sometimes he struggled with balance, the balance of the strip, you know, the humor mm-hmm. and the violence and the, and the, 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 the grittiness and all this. And, and then John comes along and kind of, they're almost like twin stars that just orbit around each other and, and kind of stabilize each other because, you know, you, you, you start getting stories um, that are, that turn the subtext into text um, in a way that hadn't been uh, obvious before. The strip gets funnier. It gets more extreme. Alan never pulls a punch. You know, he's, his his his. Politics have this dark seam of humour, and it's a cynical humour as well, and 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 that makes it all the uh, all the better, and and all this just makes John's writing even better, and John makes Alan's writing even better, and and you know by eighty two, eighty three, eighty four, they're just they're firing on all cylinders. I mean, you know, when they're producing like four fifths of the prog. <laughs> yeah you, you know and, and all of british comics exactly and it you know i've 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 um i've seen criticism of the book um where uh, someone said um oh you, you you're making out that it was this grand um uh planned satire and and uh, rather than just you know people earning a living i was like no 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 those two things can happen at the same time and one of the delights of it having been a commercial system in which they just had to get the pages done, is that I think quite often that may well have stripped away the ego and left only the id, um, you know. So, so they they haven't got time to to fart, well, to fart around to to you know worry too much uh, about um, uh, uh, about the kind of grand scheme of things, but that I I think produces a, a satire, a humour. Um, stories, characters that are so sharp because they need to be. They need to de- they need to deliver the script on time. The characters only have like five or six pages in order to do what they need to do. So the action and the characters are incredibly sharp. And uh, I think so much of what makes Dread great and, and continues to make it great is the fact, you know, there is that imperative. There has to be a Dread story every single week. Um, so it, 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 you know, you can't. You can't wander off on flights of fancy. You can't um, decide, you know, it's it's going to be a, a two-year internal epic where uh, you hear his uh, his thoughts on um, on you know a daffodil. Um, but so I, you know, I, I I think there's so much about that partnership that is just perfect, absolutely mm-hmm. perfect. And I don't, I don't think there's been a creative partnership in comics like that before or since. 
um, that has been, and then you put Carlos into the mix. I mean, oh my god, <laughs> you know, he comes, he comes in literally all guns blazing on on the Apocalypse War. It's like he's never been away. Um, even though like he'd done like two or three episodes of, uh, uh, since 1977, and you know, I read this stuff in Best of 2000 AD monthly, so I was I was very fortunate I got re- to read it in one chunk. But at the same time, I am quite envious for those that were reading this every single week mm-hmm. on top of Strontium Dog, on top of Robo Hunter, on you know, on top of you know what all, all the other stuff they were doing. You know, um, and 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 particularly when you get into the kind of phase where they're doing like uh, Doom Lord and uh, and things like that, and it's just I, I I can't praise them enough to be honest with you. Well, I mean, talking of Carlos and one of his sort of magnum opus uh, is it opus I I don't know uh, his <laughs> major works. Let's say that. Um, if I take you to Necropolis, um, mm. which of course is bracketed by the democracy storyline on either side of it and the point one of the points I, you made in your book and that you said at the cartoon museum was necropolis is when the judges have failed the city mm. and they've sort of failed that deal that they had with the citizens and yet still after that the democracy movement fails as well um, and I, I, it sort of has parallels for us with i mean you can think of large terrible terrorist events when we can say well actually we've given you all these extra powers and yet you've still failed us. And I thought that was something very interesting that you were talking about. Yeah. I, 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 thank you. Um, <laughs> you see it with any kind of crisis. So uh, Milton Friedman, who who was one of the great, and I mean great in terms of, of size rather than uh, uh, um, uh, kind of goodness. Um, one of the great kind of neoliberal monetarist thinkers, he was an acolyte of Friedrich von Hayek and um, was a, you know, um, led the Chicago school who absolutely destroyed um, Chile and, and um, most of uh, most of South America. But he talked in his 1965 book about how neoliberalism is essentially the, the, the system of crisis. So, it, you know, it comes in at a moment of crisis, proposes a, a, a simple solution, and that's how it gets um, its claws into stuff. And and um, this notion of, of kind of the politics of crisis – um, uh, was it Naomi Klein wrote um, the Shock Doctrine, mm-hmm. um, which is about how uh, capitalism um, exploits crises? And there's actually you know, a, a, a parallel in policing as well, where when 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 something goes wrong, when there is something like a terrorist attack, when there is, um, uh, I'm thinking in the case of someone like um, uh, the murderer of, uh, of Sarah Everard, where um, you know, something has gone wrong, something terrible has happened, and the immediate response of the state is to hand the police more powers. Mm. And that's that's the road to Judge Dredd. <laughs> I mean, you know, I can be accused of hyperbole on lots of things, but all of the evidence I read, all of the research, all of the, the, the criminologists and the sociologists uh, that I listened to basically went, this is the process that... that has taken place and is taking place. And Necropolis is fascinating because it's not just that Dread walks away, but of course the city then lies about it because it knows, and Judge Silver knows, that Dread is the linchpin holding it all together. 
you know that that uh, it's my i was delighted when i got to uh, use the earl of clarendon's term uh, a phrase to describe oliver cromwell as a as a brave bad man um and when you and this is one of the the the, the great questions at the heart of of the strip, which is if you take away Judge Dredd from this system, does the whole system fall apart? And of course it already has several times. Um, and, and the system that can fall apart because one man walks away is no, is no system at all. But you, 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 you have this situation where, you know, Dredd comes back after Necropolis, he saves the city. Um, and then requires this reestablishing of the judge's legitimacy. And it's not really, I guess, about the judge's legitimacy. It's just everyone going, well, Dred's back. Things are going back to normal. I mean, you know, th- think about our moment now. I was on a train back from Edinburgh on uh, the weekend, and I was the only person in a mask. Hmm. The desire to return to a, a status quo, to a normal that isn't actually that good to begin with um, is incredibly overpowering. I, I, in, in, in the book, I talk about, you know, think of it from the citizen's point of view. All they've known is the judges. You know, uh, uh, to say, well, it's the judges or democracy. Well, democracy is this great unknown. Like Nobody fleshes it out. Nobody, And it's one of the failings of the, of the democracy movement in the strip is that they fail to actually deliver um, a, a, a plan that isn't just we'll get rid of the judges, um, mm. and in in that this you know it, it, it is this incredible satire of of how democracy quite often is its own worst enemy, in that it does speak with a fractured voice. It is difficult. It is hard work. It must be constantly maintained, and that's why the judges are so alluring. Because they offer simple solutions to complex problems. There's a, uh, a, a died a few years ago, a criminologist uh, who was called um, Stuart Scheingold, and he wrote a book called The Politics of Law and Order. And he and that's exactly what he identified. He said that the politics of law and order lulls you into thinking that intractable intractical prob- problems have simple solutions. And the way that Dredd does that in particular, there's that uh, that wonderful panel from um, uh, The Devil You Know where um, he says, you know, when, when, a, when a perp's holding a knife to your throat, who do you want to see rolling up, me or your elected representative? I mean, it's a straw man argument straight off the bat. But yeah. it's, um, uh, Spencer Ackerman is uh, an a, a American, a very famous American um kind of national security uh, journalists pointed out the knife at your throat distracts you from the boot on your neck. And that that's what dread is doing. He's using the rhetoric of law and order to make you think about being a victim because, and this is, this is the one thing that, that, that really struck me so much uh, about dread as a character is he sounds so certain about everything, but implied in everything he says is uncertainty and fear and threat so law and order politics and the rhetoric it uses at the same time it's using words of security and and safety it's making you think of the opposite of that hmm. it makes you scared by talking about um you know actually how insecure you are um so yeah it, it um, um, once you kind of view 
Necropolis in that long spectrum. I mean, this this would be a hell of a collection, <laughs> all, all the way from like the uh, like from Question of Judgment or something, all the way through like a, a, a Necropolis, Kraken Giant, like Giant's role in in um, Necropolis and and like democracy is is really important because you have the, the two heirs apparent and what do they say about dread and about the system and um, all the way through American and um, I can't remember who was talking to me about it, but uh, you know, somebody like America Beanie who, you know, is, is the end product of this storyline. It literally embodies the end product of this storyline um, and who ends up just being a judge. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what, what an incredible long-term satire and analogy of the eternity um, and the, the self-replicating eternity of, of, of uh, a, a system of law enforcement that, that yeah, has its all, has us all in its grasp. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling, but. <laughs> well, before we leave the dark judges, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you about moments when dread is suggested alternatives mm. and we're going to sort of go through some of those but before we leave the dark judges you at the cartoon museum you were interviewed by another book clubber ian dunt the political journalist who and i'm going to steal his line that he started mm. with when because recently uh if we think of judge death the deputy chairman of the conservative party lee anderson has said um when he was supporting the reintroduction of the death penalty, said something to the effect of, like, dead people don't reoffend," <laughs> And this extraordinary moment, you know, borrowing the politics of judge death seems uh, remarkable. Bless him, 30p Lee. Um, yeah. he, uh, he's, he's, he, he's basically just the zookeeper chucking red meat into the cages, to be quite frank. Um, but the, 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 the important thing to understand about stuff like that is... is I, I hate the whole dead cat thing. Whenever anything happens, oh, it's a dead cat. Dead cat. Stop, yeah. stop overusing that term. Um, but the the the, uh, the the kind of wider implication of all that is, is is essentially the Overton window. So this notion of you know what is acceptable to the public at any given time, and it moves back and forth along a, uh, a, a concocted political scale. That is true, and there are always exceptions to this, and and people are complex and have complex opinions. Um, but so often um, parties will test ideas um, such as the reintroduction of the death penalty so that sometimes things they do do don't seem so bad because at least they're not doing that. And the what was so um, alarming for me when he said that is because um, things have moved so far beyond the original debate around the death penalty uh, you know, even before we were born, you know, it was uh, the, the 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 debate that happened in the 1950s and 60s, and the eventual abolition was grounded in these um, in the notions of of uh, not crime necessarily, but in the ability of the criminal legal system to to use that power responsibly. Um. And at the time, I, I mean, this is another parallel. Um, at the time, you, you you had a system where it was the police who charged people rather than the Crown Prosecution Service, and that produced multiple, multiple uh, miscarriages of justice and and false con- uh, uh, false confessions and and false convictions. And just recently, uh, several chief constables have suggested that they should uh, get that power back. 
so would effectively, you know, they wouldn't necessarily be the jury, but they'd, they'd practically be the uh, the judge mm-hmm. and the executioner. So yeah, these parallels keep coming to, and 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 so uh, uh, I think it was um, Andrew Harrison on on the Bunker podcast kind of fo- uh, focused on on the line in the book about um, dread. Uh, the death isn't the opposite of dread. He's the natural conclusion of that line of thinking. That you know, if if you if you have a a, a system that assumes people are criminal. And there's that, you know, as I said at the Cartoon Museum, there's that moment very early on in the strip, like, you know, what, six months in maybe, where he's coming back from the moon and he says, you know, 800 million people, everyone a potential criminal. Like, what chance do any of those people have mm. in that kind of system? And and uh, a system that produces Judge Cal, who does condemn the city to death and starts systematically executing um, you know, poor, poor RNA aardvark. Uh, um, you know, it, 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 it's all about what it, the, the, the spectrum of these views in the Overton window and what is acceptable. How far can we push this? How far can we take the notion that if you, if you are a criminal, the state can do whatever it wants to you. Well, what if we make everyone a criminal and then we can do whatever we want uh, so when Dredd talks about the law, it, it, it again he, he makes it sound certain, but it's such a a, 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 a a mutable and changeable notion. He makes up laws on the spot. You know, he already has all the power he could possibly need to do whatever he wants. So it it, it kind of ring uh, it kind of rings hollow. Um, but yeah, the, the the Judge Dead stuff. When when uh, when Lee Anderson said that. I just tweeted going, oh, the, the, the next round of publicity for my book is going very, very well. Um, yeah, disturbingly so. Yeah. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, alternatives. Mm. Um, and I note, because in your book, you cover the Brixton riots of the 1980s and in particular, Lord Scarman's report and inquiry into them. And where Scarman, one of the things he said was, you've got to fix the economy of Brixton. You've got to fix the, you know, the job prospects and the economy of, of areas like this. Yeah. And the government of the day's response was law and order, more law and order, which always seems to be, you know, the response is more law and order. Yeah. And I'm thinking that over the years, and this comes out in your book, that Dredd has been offered maybe alternatives or he's been questioned at various points in his career um possibly the earliest would be judge minty way back mm. in 147 but i know you like uh his mentor morphe fargo hershey's done it smiley there's the letter to judge dread i think you mentioned mm. um and i just wondered you know particularly with john's overview of 40 plus years of dread whether we see this sort of slight change in his character when he's he does seem to sometimes contemplate alternatives, but often just dismisses them for more law and order. Yeah, uh, be, because he he can't do anything else. Because number one, it no. would negate his very existence. Um, so you know, when when he starts to have those doubts in the nineteen eighties, if you if you see dread as um, a, a, the kind of avatar for the city. Um, when he has those doubts, the city literally falls apart. You know, there's that wonderful scene in Necropolis that uh, Carlos, I just such an incredible artist, um, did of the West Wall, 
where literally it's crumbling, like it's just flaking apart. And it, it's, 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 for me, that's not so much about the presence of the dark judges as it is the absence of it's the city's champion. Um, and, you know, people often talk about the change in him over the years and, and, and how he's become a bit fairer. I don't necessarily see that. I think what he's become aware of is that um, he can't change the system. Because every time he's tried, he's broken it. Yes. <laughs> you know, and I, I, I kind of... Um, uh, uh, the stuff about um, Mutants in Mega City 1 and Tour of Duty uh, storyline, um, he tries to make one change. And the city falls apart to the point that when the Day of Chaos comes along, it is even more vulnerable than it would have been. Mm. Um, because the, the, the thing about oppression is that it's brittle. All systems of, 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 of repressive power are, are, are brittle and break easily. You just need to find... The, the the little crack to to, to you know um, needle away at, and uh, so I, th- I I think it's one of John's great strengths, particularly in the post Alan Grant era, that he has um, continued with this deep ambiguity to the character, where um, as I say in the book, we deep down we all know that Dread and his world are intolerable, you know at least I, I hope I hope people do, um, we know that the this isn't right. It's not delivering justice. It's not delivering fairness. It's not, everyone is miserable, but the system persists because the system is the system. And if you try to change the system, it will just collapse. And John's great strength as a writer is he's constantly exploring that. And he's exploring it through the man who is the champion of this, of this system. And, it's that incredible. Uh, at, um, it's in one of the Tour of Duty collections, where it's the Council of Five meeting uh, about the um, the mutant laws, and Dread just says, uh, "You know, how much misery do we have the right to inflict?" You think that's a bit bloody rich? Yes, <laughs> I mean, from Judge Dread. more misery than any other. Um, and it, it, uh, but for me, that that just reinforces the satire. That you know, even the man who who is the exemplar, is the champion, is the only thing that is the linchpin of this entire system. Even he can't change it hmm. because it can't be changed. It's too brittle. It's based on power. It's based on um, uh, brutality. Um, and I, I I reference in the book um, uh, Antonio Gramsci's um, uh, prison diaries. It, it, you know what what I've everyone's got a goddamn opinion about uh, Marxist theory. But uh, for me, Gramsci is like one, one of the all time great thinkers of, uh, of Marxist theory, just because he, his notion of what the, what, what he calls the morbidities of, of, um, of capitalism and, and of the systems that uphold capitalism is just, is just so perfect. And, you know, he, he, he talks about, um, the time of monsters, you know, the, 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 the idea that you are between ages and this is where all the bad things happen on the path to, to revolution. I, I connect it to, um, Nye Bevan's quote about, you know, fascism is the future refusing to be born. And that's what struck me the most about Mega City One 
um, while and, and Joe Strade while reading this book is is how much Mega City One, for all of its futurism, is a place of stasis. It does not change. It cannot change because what the judges have done is they've gripped civilization just as it goes over a cliff and won't le- and can't let go. Out of fear, out of desire for power, whatever it is, um, and so you know that that entire society is is one that can't move on, and and I think that's such a powerful analogy as neoliberal globalized capitalism drives us over an ecological edge, and it can't it, it can't change. It's not changing. Like I I don't want to depress anybody, but I've got some really bad news. It's it's not. It's not going to save us. It can't because its very foundations necessitate the complete exploitation of everything. But the the answers can't come within the system. The answers can't come from the judges because the judges are the problem. Hmm. The answers can't come from the police <laughs> because the police are the problem. And so in that respect, you know, I've very much gone down that sociological route of, of – if you want to solve a problem, you've got to look at the reasons for the problem. You've got to look at the, the conditions that allow the problem to flourish and, the, the, and and support it. And and in order to find an answer, you've you've got to look beyond those conditions. You've got to think, you know, how do you change this? And, and what's so wonderful about so much of the abolitionist um, literature that's coming out now, uh, it has been coming out for many years, um, a lot of the, 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 the feminist literature, it is just it's just going we we can't rely on the system to protect us at all or to change in our favor mm. so you know I, I i think i said this at the um at the cartoon museum event i do i do not hide the fact that this process has made me an abolitionist because i i, I don't think there's any other logical natural conclusion to all the evidence <laughs> you know and it it sort of takes us back to that dread question that as you say garth ennison i think john burns gave us in um was it twilight's last gleaming i think or no it was it was devil you know and it was jeff anderson oh was it yeah 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 yeah. um he he had a brief foray into 2018 in the 90s um i knew him from the transformers comic yeah yeah Great stuff. But as you say, you know, obviously the answer is when you're being mugged, you want dread to come around the corner. But the question about why am I being mugged in the first place? <laughs> yeah. um, and, I mean, Rob Williams introduced accountant judge Maitland, I mm. think probably after or, you know, a bit too late for your book. And obviously one of the challenges for Rob will be to make a comic about economics interesting. <laughs> but I noticed that she has now been given a sort of blessing in Megacity One with a sector to try it and actually say, after nearly, you know, well over 50 years of harsh law and order, maybe we should try something different. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it'd be fascinating to see how that goes. As I say, you know, making economics interesting in the world of Mega City One. <laughs> I mean, they've they've made policing interesting, so you know, um, yeah, they did the same for for, for economics. I mean, because Maitland's Al's uh, Al Ewing's character originally, but what Rob and and with Arthur Wyatt as well as as has done is is really interesting, and one of the ways in which I think the strip is is so good 
for exploring these ideas and 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 uh, satirizing these ideas is that you can be suddenly serious about economics you can introduce arguments of defund into a, a future megatropolis of uh, hardline cops and and for it to still stand up and I, and and what I what I love about the time that I've been reading this strip, you know, since 1988, is how other people have built on John's legacy. I'm, I'm never one of those people who think only John should write Dread and it's only good when he writes it. I, I think actually that's been quite rude to John because it's it's ignoring what he's done along with Alan um, and all the artists they've worked with to create this incredible world where you can tell any story. So you can tell spy fiction, you know, when, when Judge Smiley turns up. You can, you can uh, kind of do, like, prison drama where you get Titan. Um, you can do a Trifecta with Sai, um, uh, Al, and, and, and Rob on absolutely blistering form. You can do Day of Chaos. You can do, um, you know, stories about being gay in Mega City War. And you can do stories about depression. You can do – Ken Nyman has been exploring notions of the, the precariat – you know, with his sky surfing delivery um, person, and all of this is uh, all this is happening all at the same time with multiple voices, and I think that's just what an achievement. You know, yeah. uh, with, with within the commercial sphere, with the deadlines that we're talking about, you know, it, it's not high art. And it gets ignored so easily, um, both by those who, who, who uh, sneer at it and those who kind of don't like to to, to, to see it criticised. It's a brilliant achievement by lots of creators who've always, you know, even when it's bad, it's good. <laughs> and you can't you can't really say that about many other comics, if any, you know. No, not at all. Um, it. Well, let's turn to art, because uh, mm. I'm going to judge a book by its cover. <laughs> and obviously, um, you've got Piper's cover. And I know from listening to you on another podcast that Piper, could we say he uh, understood the assignment perfectly? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we, I, I mean, I, I, I've told this a few times, but, you know, we, we were chatting on, on Facebook Messenger. I think it was like a Sunday night. And uh, I'd... Authors should never sit in um, cover design meetings because they can be quite precious. And uh, unfortunately, because I work at Rebellion, I got to sit in that meeting and I was very precious. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, I, designers that work with doing great work, it's just that I, it wasn't gelling. It wasn't working. You know, it looked a bit too much like a textbook. And then Pi, I was talking to Pi about it, and he went, I'll be back in a minute. And about 20 minutes later, he came back, and he'd taken a, a, a photo of, of, of a riot cop in, um, I think it was uh, Chile, and had, you know, used that, that wonderful kind of sickly green uh, uh, over the top and done the spray paint on the visor and then just hurriedly kind of wrote in, I'm the law, um, sort of my name at the bottom and oh my god like I, it just it was perfect it blew me away and and it was then a, a case of of my editor oliver pickles uh convincing um the powers that be to pay uh pie for for that cover <laughs> um and i i don't i don't think 
really I've ever encountered a, a cover. And, I, you know, I know it's my book, but I think I'd say this regardless. I don't think I've ever seen a cover that so perfectly sums up the contents. Hmm. Like you look at it, you know exactly what the book is about. You know exactly what its conclusion is, um, and it's complete, and it's such a stark image. And it, it's it's been fascinating to see people's reactions uh, to it. Um, you know, and and when when it was revealed um, online, people were like, yeah, yeah, this really works. Yeah, fantastic. And the, you know, the man the man's a genius. But don't tell him I said that. Okay. I won't put it out on a public, uh, you know, publicly available podcast or anything. Um, While we're talking art, uh, let's talk original art. On your wall, in your study behind you, I can see you do have some original art up on the walls. I'm going to give you um, virtually Piper's original um, art for the cover design. Mm -hmm. But is there another piece of dread artwork from 46 years that you would like to own, um, either because it's you know supports something in your book, or just because it's a wonderful moment. Yes, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good I, answer. It, yeah, it 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 it's so difficult. I think ultimately it'd be a Ron Smith page, right? Because I mean I've said this before. He is criminally underrated. And underappreciated as, as a dread artist. Think about all the great moments of Judge Dredd in the 1980s. You know, Otto Sump, um, the first appearance of Chopper, uh, Citizen Snork, um, you know, uh, the stupid gun. Uh, it just it just goes on and on and on. When, it, when, when, you know, they wanted somebody to do this ridiculous future city, they chose the ex-Spitfire pilot with the, the you know, white handlebar moustache um, with in his shirt sleeves. Um I just, I just think that the man had an incredible imagination. I think either it would be the final page of uh, Lawmaster on the Loose, which, when I revisited that, I'd, uh, I, I, I tell you something, I'd forgotten about it as a story, right? And it's very, it's a very basic story, very straightforward. Lawmaster goes on the loose, fine. And just that last page where you've got the citizen hanging on to Dreads. Uh, ankles, you know, as he as he dangles over this precipice, mile high precipice, and there's a pile of bodies in front of Dread, caused by all of it, caused by the the, the unrestricted power of the judges, and he's uh, and he's got this grin on his face, and he just goes, "Oh, you know, um, Dread, you're 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 a brave man. What what would we do without you to protect us?" What an incredible yeah. page, you know? And Dread, you've saved the day from the disaster that you caused. Exactly, exactly. And and where I talk about that story in the book jumped around a lot. Like I think it, at some point it had been in like half the chapters by the end, um, just because it's so it's so perfect. But I, but also you know Cam Kennedy, um, Sunday Night Fever, uh, Ruby Fowlclough. <laughs> and the and the and the gas sniffers and just yeah so I think I think either the end the end page of Lawmaster on the loose or something from um, uh, maybe the opening spread from uh, Hot Dog Run, which was the first dread I ever read um, in in Best of Two Thousand AD Monthly number thirty because I don't I uh, I think it's impossible 
to think of a story that could fire in young imagination just straight off the bat. Like I had no idea what was going on. It was amazing because there was literally a new idea in every single panel of that story. You've got the Gila Munja, you've got Scabby Hayes, you've got the, the, the Munts Farms um, out in the Cursed Earth, you've got Cadets, you've, you've got Judge Giant, and through it, you know, striding dread, the, 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 the great war tractors that, that um, the, the mutant band are, um, are running. And then, and then at the end, it's just, yeah, this was an assessment. <laughs> and like two of them pass or something. <laughs> and it's just, you know, it's, it's the opening, it's the opening spread where they come out of the cursed, uh, they come out into the cursed earth from the West wall. And I just, you know, the, I think the true test of an artist is their ability to relate scale. Hmm. So, you know, a bunch of future lawmen on these massive mechanical bikes coming out of the door in a mile high wall into a, a irradiated wasteland that used to be America. I just, I mean, Oh my God, <laughs> I need to, I, I'm literally going to go, I've got some work to do, but afterwards I'm going to go and grab the case files. Cause, uh, I need to I need to revisit that, but yeah, and, and that that was that was one of the joys of doing the book. Right. I, got, I got to read Red again, which you know, in the high pressure world of comic book marketing, um, I don't necessarily get as much chance to do as I should. <laughs> well, we've had surprisingly little Ron Smith chosen for the Grail page game, and I can tell you that nobody has picked those pages before, oh, well, so they become virtually yours in the Grail page gallery, <laughs> and I'll post them when this episode comes out. And I will say that I Am The Law, Had Judge Dredd Predicted Our Future, is available for fourteen ninety nine from Rebellion and from all good bookshops, or at the moment, to bargain five ninety nine on the Kindle, I know. Oh, my God. Wow. I know. Give me away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, any plans for an audiobook version? Well, I've asked about that. We, we, um, I can't say anything right. more. Okay. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's being considered. Um, right. Uh, we don't. We don't normally. We don't normally do audiobooks of our nonfiction. Right. Um, so uh, it'd be by special request. So uh, I've put in my list of potential um, uh, readers, um, but I, I very much doubt Carl Urban would be available. <laughs> okay. Well, it is. It is wonderful because it serves both as a history of dread but also as a history of the and the politics of policing over the last half century. So it's fantastic work. I really enjoyed it, Michael. That's wonderful. And thank you. I, I really do appreciate that. It's very strange to talk to people about this thing that's been inside my head for the best part of three years. Um, and, uh, you know, the response has been quite overwhelming, if I'm honest. Um, so... It's wonderful. Do you plan to do it again? Oh no! <laughs> uh, I I I like being married first and foremost. Um, I, yeah, it's it's it, it it was a fairly awful process. I'm I'm uh, you know I've been a journalist for a very long time, but writing a book is a whole other skill set that I had to basically learn on the fly um, as my my brain resisted every step of the way. So um, I think I think quite possibly that's me done. <laughs> Football. Okay. Well, it's fantastic. Thank you very much for giving me your time on this slightly wintry afternoon to talk about it. Pleasure. And thank you to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. Please go to megacitybookclub.com to find links to where you can buy I Am The Law. Follow the podcast on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Mastodon, and the 2080 forums. 
or email me mcbcpodcast at gmail.com. Michael, thank you very much. An absolute pleasure. Thank you. Uh, So until next time, when we're passing judgment on another great book, it's goodbye from me and... Uh, It's goodbye from him. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.